Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Chun. I'm Miles. I'm Anthony. And I'm Red. This week, Alex talked with Howard Scott Warshaw, one of the old-school Atari devs who made many games like Yars Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. They talk about his experience getting into computer science, old-school programming, games as a medium, and the video game crash of 1983. But first, we got a little bit of news to catch you up on. Undertale's sixth anniversary is going on, and what is the Deltarune Chapter 2? Deltarune is basically the successor to Undertale. I don't think it's directly connected. It's in the same universe. I don't think the, the stories are intertwined too heavily. And there's a slightly bigger team working on it, and it's coming out basically in installments. So the first chapter came out, I think, two, three years ago. I can't remember exactly when it came out. It has been a while. It's been a while. And so now we're finally getting Chapter 2. Did y'all know that Undertale is an anagram for Deltarune? Did know that. Oh my... In other news, Deathloop got released to a bunch of positive reviews and some mixed reviews. Apparently there's just like frame rate issues on the PC version of it at the moment. But it looks phenomenal. And it looks like one of the most fun shooters that I've seen in a minute. This may be one of the reasons to upgrade to next-gen, in my opinion. So, we'll see what goes on with that. Um, but check out Deathloop. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of videos for everybody to check out. Mm-hmm. Um, in other news, bringing back an old story, they finally got a verdict in the Epic vs. Apple case. Uh, the end of a saga. The court has ruled in favor of Epic, and they have said that Apple must uh, allow other forms of payment through their app store uh, and not just their own. So we shall be seeing a lot more options, I believe, coming up in the future through different apps and different ways to pay. Meanwhile, Epic, they do have to pay back to Apple. I mean, which which kind of makes sense. You have to like pay back for like the the tens of time that you weren't following the rules, but then you also, the rules must be changed now moving forward. Mm -hmm. The next God of War, God of War Ragnarok, is going to apparently be the final one in the Norse saga. Cory Balrog talked about how it takes five years, essentially, for each one of those games to be made. And if you're going to go, like, having a three-parter like the original and then going five years a piece. It's going to talk about 15 years for a storyline. I have a feeling that just like settling it in two really well done games is totally fine. But I am also excited to see where Kratos and or Atreus will go next. If there's going to be a new God, if we're going to follow an even older, what happens? Yeah. A good story got to have an end. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, when the first of the Norse God of War games was announced, it was really a surprise because it felt like they had come to a very serious sort of conclusion of Kratos' storyline like before that. And so it was just sort of a, a nice surprise to see another God of War game coming. And, you know, it was just such an amazing game that it really blew everyone out of the water. 
and sort of reminded everyone that, hey, this is a, a franchise that still has some legs. Yeah. For what they've done with the story with and revamping it and actually adding a little bit more depth to a lot more depth to Kratos, I think it's they've done a really remarkable job in telling a really awesome story. But I think it's about time we do wrap it up and then we throw it over to Alex and Howard Warshaw to talk about the old school programming stuff and maybe a little bit um, learn a little bit about some punch card stuff. But without further ado, here is Alex and Mr. Howard Scott Warshaw. And here we are with Howard Scott Warshaw. Welcome, Howard. Uh, thank you, Alex. It's great to be here with you. I really appreciate it. This is just a, a wonderful uh, uh, interview because I have such wonderful attachment as a child to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I wanted to start with your experience with programming. How did you come to it? What was it like? Where did you get started? Uh, that's a really interesting question because uh, I had the opportunity to get started with programming when I was in about 10th grade. We actually had a terminal from Rutgers University. A lot of my friends were totally getting into it. I avoided it like the plague. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And that resistance lasted well into my college career. Uh, it was just at one point, I was an economics major. And at one point, one of my advisors said, you have any computers? And I said, no, I'm not interested in computers. And they said, well, if you're going to go anywhere in economics, you got to have something in computers. So it's really going to help you. I said, okay, picked up a computer course. There's I, in my recent book, there's a whole story about exactly how I came into it. But basically, I picked up a course in the middle of the semester, completed the course that night. Actually, I completed the first half of the course that night. It took me another two nights to finish the course. And I realized, holy cow, this is the answer to all of my academic dreams. I finally found something where I don't have to read long, meandering books, write long reports. My homework is solving fun puzzles. And away I went. That was it. I just totally poured myself into computers from then on. And from the first day I touched a computer, it was about two and a half years until I had a master's degree. And then I went to uh, Hewlett Packard and was really bored because professional computing was very different from academic computing. But I heard about this place that does real-time control programming, and that's what I wanted to do. And they also had a wild environment, and that was something I wanted because I was I was very much an outcast at uh, Hewlett Packard because I was too wild. And that place happened to be called Atari. And it turns out they made games, but I went there because of the kind of programming and uh, the environment they had. Games was just sort of a nice plus at the end, but it turned out to be a very important part of the whole thing. Now, when you're actually in there developing these games in Atari, I mean, this was not a process like today with JavaScript where kids just make a change and, oh, I see it immediately, right? Like, <laughs> can you share with us some of the pain that was associated with this? Problem? Oh, absolutely. Now, you have to understand that when I, my first computer class, I was using punch cards. I would actually sit down at a punch terminal and punch out cards, take a stack of cards bring it over to the operator who would feed it through a card reader, run it on the computer, get a printout of the execution, put that in a bin somewhere. I would go and pick up my listing, and that's what programming was like. It was a it was about a year before we had terminals where you could actually just be doing uh, at least that interactively. Uh, it still wasn't horribly interactive, but at least we are working on a terminal not using all that paper. And when I got to Atari, uh, we were working with, uh, when I first started there, it was still uh, eight-inch floppies, I think, <laughs> originally. And there were dev systems that you basically had to keep your program on an eight-inch floppy. And you'd go into the development system, plug in the floppy. You could 
bring in the program, edit it in assembly language, with all pure assembly language. Uh, when you wanted to execute it, you could assemble and download the code to a target system. And we had an HP uh, logic analyzer, an in-circuit emulator and a logic analyzer. And so debugging was basically watching what's going on the screen, trying to figure out what's happening. Occasionally, you could set breakpoints in the logic analyzer to stop and check the value of certain variables. And if you wanted to, if you wanted to actually make a change to test something out, you could either poke a value into one of the RAM things. So just to give you a sense of scale, uh, VCS, like Yars Revenge, my first game, was 4K. That was the entire space it took, was just 4K bytes. That was average size at the time. It was big, you know, but it was 4K bytes of ROM. Okay, that was all read-only yeah. memory. As far as RAM, to save all of your game state, score, positions, we had 128 bytes, and that was it. So we had 4K of ROM, 128 bytes of RAM. So I could poke values into the RAM on the emulator, or if I was really slick, if I really wanted to test a little code thing, then I could set a patch which means I could put a jump instruction somewhere in the middle of the code to go to some other unused area of memory, actually in my head, assemble a few instructions and put the machine code in that stuff and then put the return code back, you know, the return jump back. And that's how I could test fixes if I didn't want to have to leave the uh, emulation, open up the file, edit, reassemble, re-download, and rerun. Okay, so that was the environment we were working, and that was state of the art. Oh, absolutely! And at, you bring up Yar's Revenge, and one of the things that I, I love to tell people when we show that game at the museum is that field of static. I mean, that's just reading the raw values out of RAM and interpreting them as, as visual code, right? I mean, it's just like reading well, those ones and zeros, right? Out of ROM, I'm sorry. Right? Yeah, it was. I was using the game code as graphics because I figured the uh, machine instructions were a reasonable randomization of bits. So I would just, and, and we didn't have much time. We literally had 76 cycles uh, across the screen because we were programming the electronic beam as it moved across the screen. So bitmap and stuff like that, what a, that was a luxury we never had. <laughs> no frame buffers. <laughs> no frame buffers, nothing like that. It was just, we actually were controlling the electron beam as it scanned across the screen. And then we'd reset and go back to the beginning. And there it was. So 75% of your execution time was just managing the stuff actually displaying the screen. You had 25% of all your time left over for 100% of your game computer. And then you're back on screen. I just I've always loved the the creativity it would take to, you know, you don't have the room for graphics. So what do we have here? You know, I can make a static screen out of just interpreting all of this literal these little other stuff as graphics. I mean, talk about reusing code. That's like on another level. You do crazy programming tricks, the things that are absolutely uh, against the rules, the kind of things that you should never, ever do in programming. That was the mainstay of what Atari was all about. So, like I said, I, I wanted to have a good graphic effect, but I couldn't afford the space for a whole bunch of nice animations or graphics. So I grabbed code, which is cheap because it's on there already. I just grab a byte of code. I would throw it in the graphics register. Then I would throw it in the color register. So it was effectively randomizing both of them. And it came up with this glittering effect. And I did it in a counter-scrolling both up and down to enhance the, the glittery, you know, randomness looking feel of it. It was just it was just a cool effect and it cost me virtually nothing. And 
people, and that was what I was all about because remember I was an economics major, right? It turns out <laughs> my economics background was much more valuable to me in programming at Atari than uh, my math and computer background, simply because economics, you know, people think it's about money, but economics is the study of allocating scarce resources. And there was never a scarcer resource than the 2600 in terms of time, memory, or anything you're going to do. It just didn't have much, but we tried to do everything we could with it. Certainly. And, and before you said the ROM was 4K, that was the largest available cart size at the time, was it at not? At the time. It later went on to 8K. I mean, there were huge innovations like while I was at Atari. For instance, by the time I was doing Raiders, uh, we didn't have to use floppies. We actually had terminals that we could use on a VAX. We had an early oh, VAX wow. system. And so we would do our assembly and, and, and text editing on the VAX and then download the image to the same dev systems that we were originally using and the same in-circuit emulator and the HP logic analyzer. None of that improved, but it was easier to just do our downloads uh, that way. Well, that, that must have cut down on the bottleneck of the single machines that you had, you know, the, the time sharing, right? Like, Well, there, yeah, there was time sharing on, on that regard. Yeah, we'd have one machine that was handling everybody's editing and downloading. Everyone still had to have their own dev system, their own target dev target system, because it wasn't simulating that environment for everyone. Those had to be strict hardware in place environments in each station. Gotcha. And, and on the, the player input side, there was an incredible scarcity of input methods. And in Raiders, I remember as a kid when I got that game, the last Atari game I ever got, 2600 game I ever got, I remember taking it home and looking at the manual going, I need both controllers in order exactly. to play this game? Well, you got to do what you can to expand the capacity of the machine. And all we had was a joystick that had four switches, so it had eight positions and one button. And that's all you had. So if you have a game where you have to navigate and you have to manage an inventory, you can either do one or the other, but that's very limiting. And if you're going to have an action component, which I wanted to have in the game, uh, you don't want to be burdened trying. If you have to interrupt your action to manage your inventory to get killed, I don't think that's a satisfying game experience. So I did something no one had ever done before or since, and that is, except for battle tanks, I believe, and that is use both joysticks uh, in the game. And I thought it was just a cool idea. And I, I, I built in some gameplay sequences that required you to manage both joysticks at the same time, as I'm sure you're aware. And mm -hmm. that was, uh, and that was intentional. And it was just because I, I, I didn't believe in limitation. I'm not a limitation kind of guy. I'm a do anything kind of guy. And so when you tell me, well, we hardly have anything, I, I don't hear what we don't have. I only think of, what can I do with that? What's the most outrageous? What's the biggest? What's the most dramatic thing I can do with that? And that's what I want to do. And Raiders, you know, the Raiders controller scheme was a good example. I mean, despite all of your uh, more, you know, mathematics, uh, suit and tie background, you're, you're describing art to me, right? Like this is what I would say an artist would say, oh, that, you know, I've got to expand painting beyond, you know, the, the canvas, like a Kandinsky or something. Well, that's a really, really good point. Thank you for raising that because that's something that most people don't get to. And that is that, you know, most computer programming is not that uh, challenging in my view, because when you have a spec and you have technology that can meet that spec, the idea of going from the spec to the technology that meets it is not really that bold a journey. But what video games did was it added one component to a technical spec 
that I've never seen in any other technical spec anywhere. And that is the application has to be fun. When you edit, you know, most things it's like when I flip this switch, I want this light to go on. And so we test it and it works and it's done. Nobody says, is your C compiler more fun than your Pascal compiler? That's <laughs> people don't generally do that. But this game had to work in a really challenging technical environment, but it also had to be fun. And so it was this mixture of art and science. And that really turned me on. That was my big discovery in my life. And in fact, my book, that's one of the main themes about it, is this idea of, you know, how, if are you an artist or are you a technologist? I was always a person who was both and yet was in a world that demanded you choose and you had to be one or the other. And that was both eye-opening and frustrating. Uh, and I think one of the things that appealed to me, throwing in an additional, you know, sort of lever here, uh, one of the things that really appealed to me about Raiders is the mis mystery of it. It's a very mysterious sort of game because there's hidden places you have to get to. It's not, you know, why why is this happening? Where am I? What's going on? Kind of a feeling that you would have if, like you say, read a Grant Morrison comic book or watch a David Lynch movie or something. Not that that's an intentional comparison, but, you know, the, the exploration of mystery elements are something that are very important to video games these days. And you were able to evoke that on an Atari ST with blocks and beeps. Well, thank you. And I was going for that. Absolutely. It's, and you make a, a very important comparison there. It's like, you know, the comparison between movies or books and games is always there. And people are always trying to find to merge them. It's always been that's the thing. The movie business and the games business kind of feed off of each other. They compete with each other and they want to be each other in a lot of ways. But there's a fundamental difference between them that I always think is interesting to note. And that is like, see, I don't believe you can have a game movie or a movie game. It doesn't really make sense, even though I made the first ones. You, know, you can do a one for it, but they're different medium and they're fundamentally different medium. Like a book and a movie are much more similar than a movie and a video game. And the reason is that books and video and books and movies are what I call passive media. Words, I'm going to give you my attention and you're going to take me on a journey and I, and I want to enjoy the journey. We'll see how good that journey is, but it's your journey that I'm going. A video game is interactive entertainment. And that's where I'm going to give you the opportunity to create your own journey. And can you create something that you find engaging or challenging? And so when you have puzzles in a book, the, the, the trick is, can you figure it out before I tell you what the answer is? In a game, the challenge is to surmount it and overcome and actually solve it. And that's a very different kind of experience. So when you try to mix a, uh, a movie and a game, what you have is an interactive passive medium. And I don't think there's such a thing. And that's why I think there's that tension between them that's both exciting and consternating. Mm -hmm, indeed. Uh, you mentioned your book. So uh, what's the title and where can people find it? Uh, the title is Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. Because as many people are aware, I did the E.T. video game, which was reputed to have destroyed the video game industry. Of course, that's a little hyperbole because and I, I go into great length in the book about exactly what are the factors that caused the uh, video game crash. And it's more of things like it was the first time we did a console, a video game console that really was successful, the cultural aspects of Atari, the cultural shift from uh, 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 Nolan Bushnell to Ray Kazar and Warner Atari. These were the things that really promoted the environment that led to the crash. 
But I also talked about really what it was like to be at Atari, my first day at Atari. And you can find this book all over the place, any online bookseller. It's all over Amazon and places like that. Or you can go to onceuponatari.com and you can get autographed copies of my book. There's also a DVD documentary series, Once Upon Atari, that uh, I produced and, and directed as well. Yeah, that's an excellent series. I can't recommend that enough. I think you hit on something excellent and important there, but it's also, you know, there's this this expansion and contraction, almost like Gardner says, where the, the trough and disillusionment kind of things. And I don't think people t- today, when they talk about the crash, understand that at that time, video games were so phenomenally large, they did not get back to that amount of revenue adjusted for inflation to like 2012, right? Like grandma was playing video games. Everybody was playing video games because they were so accessible and so quick and so easy to understand. And, you know, Pac-Man was on Time Magazine's cover, you know, Pac-Man of the Year, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't like you could just kick a peg out of the, out from underneath and destroy this whole thing like with E.T., right? This was a, this was a bubble. You wouldn't think it was, it was, it was the bubble that was part of a sea of soap water. <laughs> and, the <sex. laughs> and the idea that video games were disappeared and, and, and gone forever, the people who were in the industry knew that was not the case, that it couldn't possibly be the case. That we were we were pioneering a new medium. That's what we were doing, and we knew it. And that was super exciting. And it was great to be that. But the world sees what gets pushed out through the omnidirectional sludge pump note is the media, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, just to go back to Marshall McLuhan. And it's uh, what happened was the financiers are the ones who really drive a lot of that. And you have to understand the idea that, you know, we knew people who were making games knew how fundamental this was. People who were investing in video games, the financiers, the marketers, people like that, they never really understood what a video game was. They understood the revenue stream. And what they saw was a huge revenue stream that was spontaneously just taking the world over and suddenly disappeared. And so what they said was fad. That rings their fad button. So they decided it was a fad. They got off the train. It left a vacuum there that other fad products picked up and other, you know, social trends, you know, jump in to fill. But video games would climb back in. But this was all part of that idea of uh, the first time. You know, it's the first, nobody knows how to do something the first time. We make all our mistakes on the first one. And this was the first time someone had launched a really successful game console. Nobody knew when to introduce the next generation. Now people know that and we have continuity. Oh, absolutely. And and you mentioned all the investors and so forth. I mean, it wouldn't have been a, an explosive crash if it wasn't for these investors rushing in the gold rush phenomenon, right? Like right. there was a lot of crap that was built in that day as well. You, you have to fill a space before people notice the emptiness. Yes. <laughs> and they rushed in to fill it with a tremendous amount of money, which sucked all this crap into the market because there was no barrier to crap, unfortunately, at that time. Yep. Yep. And then people went, holy crap, look at all this crap. <laughs> and then they everybody ran away. Oh, my God, this is horrible. And it did leave a huge vacuum. But... The, the interactive entertainment seed had been planted in a way that it was just going to hibernate for a little while, and then it came to germinate in a more full way. And so Atari didn't survive it. Atari was became the straw man that fell and burned, and everyone else got to toast their marshmallows on the flames and have a nice meal. 
Yeah, but I, it also I think that the the population was very much primed for the idea that video games were a fad since the seventies were defined by fadism, right? The pet rock and bell bottoms and just uh, fad after exactly. fad. Exactly. See, the seventies. I think that's very astute. I mean, it's really true that in the seventies, the marketing mentality of the country seemed to really catch on to this. We can make something away. And it became fad marketing. And then video games showed up, which is one of the most compelling fads they'd ever seen. And people jumped all over it. And when it disappeared, it just confirmed everyone's idea that it was a fad. But what it was, was it was just, you know, it was the burning carcass, right? It was the unlearned lessons yet to be implemented. And so there's never been a video game crash since the revival of the video game market which is going on 30 years now, 35 years. It's been a long time since the revival. No, certainly. And it goes and it ebbs and flows, right? There, were, there was the Sillywood era where there was a lot of full motion video stuff that went out of fashion. Like any, any emerging space, it doesn't just go in a straight line. And, uh, right. You know, it's always a sawtooth and things like that. But the thing that's interesting is when, in the birth of a new medium, which is something we have seen occasionally more. You know, the web has launched a lot of things like that. It's with any new media, it's people didn't know what the concept of a killer app was back then. But with every new media, what they do, the first thing they do is they copy the previous media. But with yeah. interactive entertainment, there wasn't really a previous media. So it's the search for the killer app. First, people have to learn what you can do with this. Then they have to learn what you can do that you never imagined you could do. And people just couldn't think of all the applications yet. It took a while for that to turn. And uh, so but once when, when video games came out, I guess my point is that interactive Atari itself was not that compelling that it had to be a rep. Interactive entertainment was. And so you could look at it as a fad, but it had opened a Pandora's box of things that was just the beginning of an incredible wave of both entertainment and super useful tech, life-changing technology. Yeah, it's like a couple thousand people who are members of the Beatles. <laughs> exactly. Well, Howard Scott Warshaw, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Alex and uh, Mr. Warshaw. This was a great interview. It's always fascinating to hear about you know the early days of the first computer games and the first home consoles. It's so it's grounding one and just fascinating to hear, you know, just pe what people's imaginations could take them to back then. Mm -hmm. I want to have another conversation with him at some point to get a little bit more about ET. Uh, so to wrap it up today, what has everybody been playing? This may sound stupid, but I'm actually playing Monopoly with my friends. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's just a random idea. It's not stupid. Just one of the people in the group just just setting us, hey. It's fun. Monopoly is fun. And just play Monopoly and I just I had to say that I, I'm opposed of that opinion at first, but I definitely don't want to spend money on playing that and because it just sounds stupid to me. I don't know why, but for some reason, but No. I end up following them and just it, I mean played it. It was ten bucks on sale. I also made it past again. It's Monopoly is fun. Don't let the haters tell you otherwise. Monopoly is fun. <laughs> it just <laughs> you know, I'm never I'm never the one with good luck. 
I yeah, there's always that. It's like you stay in the jail for the first few rounds of the game. Uh, oh no, that's that definitely so fun. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can understand why you have a tumultuous relationship with Monopoly, but you have it now, and it'll be fun. There's all. I wish there was. I wish there was like a limited amount of things you could do in those board games to like throw off or just like annoy other players, like you would or sitting around a table. You know, just like flick a little house at them from across the board. Just given that we we have so many esports nowadays, even the statue ready one, I would be actually be looking forward to see something like Monopoly esports or Uno esports. That'd be pretty fun. <laughs> yes, that would be amazing. They're on Steam. I mean, why why just there's there isn't anyone ever have this idea before? It's technically, I mean, it is a, an internet game. There are many other games. I mean, Rocket League is an eSport, so why can't Monopoly be one? <laughs> yeah, There's a car going Stardew around. Stardew Valley is an eSport. Come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let your mind expand and let's like see what other competitions you can create for money. <laughs> Maybe we should start it up. I think we just... We just... Go for it. <laughs> mm, all right. Yes, that's our next thing. Competitive, board, competitive online board games. Uh Hosted by the main. That'd be great. Five dollar <laughs> entry fee. Please help support. Well, we should probably talk it to, with Alex. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 pencil that in for later. We'll we'll talk more about the competitive online board games in a little bit, because um, I think it is time that we send you on your way. And we want to thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services. And we continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Chen. I'm Miles. And I'm Red. And I'm Anthony. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thank you.